Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the love which we experience from your hand every day. And Lord, as we join together to pray this morning, we're reminded of the scripture in the Psalms which tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And Lord, as we think of the human attempts at peace that have gone on in recent weeks, we have a real difficult time not being cynical about the whole process, knowing, Lord, that true peace only comes from God above. And so, Father, we would join our hearts in, in, in that prayer that you would bring peace to Jerusalem by your method and by your means and in your time. And, Father, I pray that that peace will, will radiate out of our hearts to those around us and that in everything we do, the, the shalom of God will be seen in us and that that will be a distinguishing characteristic whereby others will recognize that we have been with Jesus. Lord, I pray that you will bless our study this morning. I pray that you will minister the word to the hearts of all who are on this uh, property this morning in every class and in every service. We ask, Lord, that you be exalted for it's the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let's turn to the fifth chapter of Joshua. Fifth chapter of Joshua. I'd like to read the first 12 verses. Now when it came about, all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourselves flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made uh, himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they had, did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And their children, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised, because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now it came about, when they had finished circumcising all the nation, that they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the approach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, on the very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Now, last Sunday, we got into this chapter and, and talked about uh, a portion of it. By the agency of a spectacular miracle, Israel is now in Canaan. They had come in mass across the river. And now they have camped just a very few miles, probably not more than two or three, 
from the walls of the city of Jericho. With their coming into the land and with the great miracle that God had performed, we read in that first verse that the Canaanites and the Amorites, the people who populated this whole land, were terrified. Their hearts had melted within them. They knew that the God of Israel was more powerful than any of their gods. And so as we look at this, you know, if we had just looked at the first part of the passage and not read any further, we probably would have wondered why it was that they didn't strike while the iron was hot, you might say. The guys are afraid, uh, the people are terrorized, capture Jericho, bust into the highlands, sweep over the land, and lock it all up virtually overnight. But in God's eyes, they were spiritually unprepared for the conquest. In order to receive God's empowerment, they had to demonstrate submission and obedience. They had to take care of something that they had not taken care of for 40 years. And last week we dealt with the whole issue of circumcision being the seal, the sign. The sign of the covenant, of the covenant of Abraham. The covenant through which God had promised Canaan to the people. And for 40 years, as a demonstration of their disobedient hearts, they had not performed the right there in the wilderness. And so now, before they were going to go into the land, this had to happen. As we noted last week, uh, at the end of class, uh, from Exodus 12, we're told that circumcision was a necessary prerequisite in order for any person in Israel to practice this, the Passover. Could not pass, practice the Passover without circumcision being a sign of their commitment to God. And I parallel that uh, uh, to some extent with the scripture in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 where we, talk, where we read about the communion and how sometimes the communion can be taken unworthily and the scripture warns us about that. Not being spiritually prepared to be one with our brothers and sisters in Christ in our worship of Him and the honoring of His death and resurrection by participating in the communion elements. I think this helps us to recognize that God is very serious. You know, God expects us to be serious too about our faith and about our commitment to Him and to realize it isn't a, a hit and miss thing. It's not something we can say, oh, well, today, you know, it's okay. I'll, I'm okay. I don't need God. I don't need to pray. don't need to read the Word of God. Not that by praying or reading the Word of God, we somehow earn brownie points, you know, and somehow we get closer to heaven simply because we've done these things. But it demonstrates where our heart is. It demonstrates where our heart is. Prayer and reading of Scripture is an outgrowth of true commitment to Christ. I don't know if you were, uh, any of you were able to hear uh, Lutzer this morning, but he was making a comment that your or my longing for the return of Christ demonstrates how much we really love him. If we're really longing for him to come and we would love for him to come at any moment, this demonstrates our love for him. But if we say, well, Lord, I know you're coming, but you know, I don't want you to come yet because I got this to do, that to do, the other thing to do. Uh, this this kind of demonstrates a diminished love. <laughs> that the love of Jesus is not our greatest love, that there are other things that are standing in between us and him. And so I think this is truth that comes out of this passage here in Joshua 2. It's very important, I think, to note that Israel arrived in Canaan just at the time of Passover. Now, God could have led Israel into Canaan at any time but he chose to lead them into Canaan just before the time of Passover. In Joshua 4.19, we read that the people crossed the Jordan on the 10th of the first month. 
and Passover was to be practiced on the 14th of the first month. The first month is the month Nisan. That is the first month of the ceremonial calendar. It is our March-April period of time. It's the springtime. And the crossing of the Jordan, the circumcision of Israel, and the celebration of the first Passover in the Promised Land, I don't think is an accidental combination. Think about it. The miraculous entrance into the land, the obedience in circumcision, and then the celebration of the first Passover in the land. It all takes place 1,400 years before the death, the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Passover, of course, itself mirrors Jesus as our Passover lamb. But, but I think it's expanded when we think of the miraculous crossing and the, and the act of circumcision, the, the rolling away of the reproach of, of, of Egypt, which we're told here. Uh, in this passage was carried out in this act of circumcision. It was the act of obedience, the act of obedience. And it literally transformed this people. As far as we have record in Scripture, this is only the third Passover that Israel had practiced. The first took place, of course, in Egypt when the, when the whole thing was inaugurated. The second took place at the base of Mount Sinai a year later, and we have no further record of Passover being practiced by Israel until this very moment when they enter the land. Verse 11 of this passage gives us another little insight. It says, on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Nisan, after having celebrated their first Passover in the land, they began to eat of the produce of the land, and thus on the 16th of Nisan, manna stopped never to come again to Israel. Can you imagine what this meant to some of them? There were people in the nation who had moved into the land who had had manna their entire lives because they were born in the wilderness and that's all they had known. I mean, along with, you know, little meat products and the things that came from the herds. But that was all they had known for all that time. And some of them probably had belly ached and said, oh, this manna, we've had it so often, you know. And yet now it ceases. It stops. <laughs> and the, probably the same people who said, oh, this manna, we've had it so often, are probably saying, oh, Lord, where's the manna? <laughs> There's something about human nature that you and I, I think, are pretty well aware of by now, <laughs> that we are never satisfied no matter what happens, it seems. I think there were probably some who said, see if I can think of a formula to make manna here, you know, and make something that tastes like it. Well, you know, if you were raised on something and you had known this your entire life, and you're like 38 years old, you know, and you'd known manna every single waking hour, I mean, you know, every day you could remember anyway, it would be a traumatic experience, wouldn't it? All of a sudden, it's there no more. And you have to eat the stuff of the land. Well, the need for manna was gone. That's why it ceased. God provided manna for two reasons. The first reason was to meet the needs of the people in the wilderness. Now, most of you probably have never seen the Sinai wilderness, except possibly from Landsat photograph or something. The Sinai is a very barren place. It, the word wilderness is not used for no reason at all. And obviously, they couldn't live off the land out there. And, and, and they weren't a nomadic people like some, and, and there are some gross ones, you know, that live over in Central Asia who drink the blood of their animals and all this kind of stuff. The Israelites did not do that. It was, of course, forbidden to them to do that. 
Uh, and so their animals were not sufficient to, to meet their needs. It wouldn't be a very good diet anyway. So they, of course, had the manna and God provided it for him. But there was a second reason that God provided the manna. And that was to demonstrate his faithful daily love and care for his people. I'm there for you every day. God didn't miss a single day. God didn't take a holiday. God didn't take a vacation. God didn't say, well, you know, I mean, the only day it didn't fall, of course, was what? On, on, on the Sabbath. But they knew that. And they got enough the day before so that there was plenty to carry them over. But, but God, throughout the whole time, supplied their need according to his mercies. Now, they're living, we're told, on a desert plain, but they're not in the wilderness. They're not in the wilderness. I have described this to you before. Jericho is no wilderness. Jericho, the land around Jericho is very dry looking and the, the mountains are kind of barren around there, but Jericho is a beautiful place. It's like a garden because there are springs there and these springs bring water and the climate at Jericho is wonderful. In the, in the summertime, yeah, it's a little bit on the hot side. It reminds me of Reading in July. But in the uh, rest of the year, it's just delightful. I think I mentioned you before, and, and Dr. Walmark and Eve uh, remember this too, because when we were in Jerusalem in one time in January, it was cold. I mean, it was snowing, and, and then we went down to Jericho, and it was 72 degrees, you know. <laughs> Shirt sleeve weather, you know, come from parka weather to shirt sleeve weather, and all you've done is drop from Jerusalem to Jericho. Of course, the elevational drop is about 3,500 feet. And so there was adequate food available. The land ahead of them was full of orchards and vineyards and field crops. In back in Deuteronomy 8, and we read this passage before, but let me just quote part of the verse to you. God had promised to the Israelites that they would enter a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates and olives and honey. That was not an exhaustive list of everything that was there. It was a demonstration to Israel that the land they were going into was a bountiful land. And with God's blessing, it would always produce. With God's blessing, it would always produce. We're told, in fact, in Joshua 3, we read it just a couple of Sundays back, that the time they arrived was the time of harvest. And the scripture makes it very clear, it was barley harvest, time of the barley harvest. And so that's what we're uh, even reading in this passage in verse 11, uh, where it says that they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. What are we talking about? We're talking about cakes made out of ground barley, and we're talking about roasted barley itself. I don't know if you've ever had just plain roasted grain, just, just the little kernels. It's really good. And they devoured that, I think, with great relish. Now, to the Canaanites, if we were to put ourselves into the sandals of the Canaanites and look at this whole situation, what would our view be? Plague of grasshoppers has hit us, only they're in human form, you know. To them, to the Canaanites, the Israelites were going to come and devour everything in sight. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of them. And as they come across the land and they live off the land, they're going to strip the fields and strip the trees and, you know, what's going to be left for the Canaanites? But of course, from Israel's perspective, the Canaanite crops were God's provision because God had given them the land. It was their land. So Israel was walking into a turnkey land. They weren't walking into a land where they were going to, you know, just barren land and they were going to have to start all over and, and start plowing the ground and planting trees. And everything was there already. 
The fields were plowed and planted. The orchards were in. The vineyards were in. It was all to be theirs. And so they would simply take it over. And the Canaanites would be displaced because it was God's intention to provide his people with the bounty of the land. In fact, the scripture makes it clear, and we'll be reading the passage later on, not today, where it says that God did not want them to take the land over in one fell swoop, but to occupy it as they took it over so that it wouldn't go wild in between. You know, if they captured this city and this area and moved all through the land and then all of a sudden moved in to take over, it would all have fallen into disuse. The fields would have weeds in it, and, and the scripture specifically says the, the wild animals would have multiplied. And so they were to capture and occupy, capture and occupy, capture and occupy as they went along. Well, let's read the last passage of the fifth chapter. This, of course, is a very somewhat enigmatic but very encouraging passage at the same time. Verses 13 through 15. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, rather, I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Israel was in the camp. Israel is healing from circumcision. Israel has celebrated the Passover. They have committed themselves to God in obedience. And now Joshua is out surveying the defenses of the city. Because no matter, we know the story, right? We know what's ahead. Joshua didn't. And so Joshua, as any good commander, was out surveying the land. He was reconnoitering for his army. And he was looking at this, this, the defenses of Jericho and the lay of the land and, and probably calculating in his mind how it could be that an attack could be carried out in this city. And I think, however, at the same time, he was praying. <laughs> I think he was praying like crazy because you remember he was one of the 12 spies that had gone into the land 39 years before. And he had come back with the others and had admitted, yes, the cities are large and fortified unto heaven which, of course, was a hyperbole, but it, it simply meant that the walls were very tall uh, compared to Israel's capacity to attack them. And, and Jericho, I think, was a classic example of a, probably a medium-sized city with adequate defenses. You know, Jericho wasn't an Alamo, you know, a kind of a broken-down old church with a low wall here and something over there. I mean, this whole city was circled by a stone wall and that stone wall was probably at least 20 feet high. Now, when you think about that, you, you re have to realize that in our day, of course, that's no problem. You just fly over and drop a bomb, <laughs> you know, or you blow a hole in the wall with your cannon. But, but none of that existed in his day. In fact, stone walls ceased to be built around cities exactly because of the invention of the cannon. Because the cannon could blow a hole in a stone wall, so what's the point anymore? Stone walls simply became decorative more than anything else or give you a, a kind of a false sense of security. Or keep out those, of course, who didn't have cannon. But, but Israel had no siege equipment. 
Israel had no practice in laying siege to a city. They, they had no knowledge of how to get into a strongly fortified city. All the cities they had captured so far, those up in Gilead, had been cities that were fairly modestly fortified without high stone walls and cities that were fairly easy to take by one way or another. But here was a city that was bolted up against them, armed troops standing all around the parapets of the wall, prepared to defend even though they were scared to death, they were still prepared to defend. And Israel had slings and bows and swords and spears. Well, you can shoot a whole lot of arrows at a stone wall, and it won't make much difference. In fact, many cities in antiquity have not fallen to besieging armies simply because the besieging army did not have siege equipment. And if a city has enough food and water inside, it can last who knows how long against a siege. I mean, cities have been known to hold out for five years or more, although encircled by an enemy because they had enough food and water inside to stay that long. And we've, we've stood on the summit of Masada, which was a, a fortified hilltop. And in, in, the, in the very rock of Masada has been carved cisterns, cisterns as large as our sanctuary in there. And those cisterns, of course, would be filled with rainwater. And just think how long, if you have several of those, half a dozen of them, how long can a people of a thousand or more people hold out on a, on a summit of a mountain if they have that kind of water supply? And of course, archaeologists have discovered caches of food at Masada of figs, dates, and grain that were still edible. They've been on the mountain for 2,000 years, hidden away, still edible. I mean, it's a very dry climate there, <laughs> very dry. So obviously, uh, you need to have some kind of miracle if you don't have siege equipment and the people are prepared to resist. Joshua was praying for wisdom and praying for insight. Did God answer his prayer or what? At that very moment, God, who is the great encourager, came to Joshua. The scripture tells us in, in 1 Peter 5 that we're to cast our anxieties upon him because why? He cares for us. God cared for Israel. The scripture tells us that his strength is demonstrated in our weakness. The weakness of Israel to capture this city will demonstrate the might of God. Just as Israel's inability to bridge the Jordan showed off God's great power in stopping up the Jordan and bringing him across. And it's scared. I mean, would the people of, of Canaan been as, fra uh, as afraid if Israel had come across on little boats and little bridges? No. But when the river stops up like a wall and the people come across and it goes back in its place, oh, you know, it's not a normal experience. And as a result, the people of Canaan were, were frightened. Now, Joshua, I think, was lost in thought. He was surveying the city and he was looking over the lay of the land and he was praying in his heart to God and he didn't notice this form standing, I don't think, really very far away, maybe less than 100 feet away. Of course, the, the apparition, you might want to call it, the, the, the being, showed up rather suddenly, I think. And I think Joshua at first was startled. Whoops, <laughs> here's a guy standing over here in full armor with a drawn sword. Where'd he come from? Joshua's natural reaction was to challenge the stranger. Because I think at the moment Joshua probably remembered the words of the Lord, throughout the days of your life, no man will stand against you. And so 
He, I, I think, it doesn't say specifically, but I think Joshua drew his sword. And he approached the stranger and he challenged him. He says, are you friend or are you foe? Now, in that little phrase, I think is a statement of the truth of spiritual warfare. In spiritual warfare, there is no middle ground. There is no neutral place. Jesus made it clear that you're either for him or you are against him. You can't stand neutral. You can't truly be agnostic. There is no agnostic position ag recognized by God. We are either for him or we are against him. And if we aren't for him, we are automatically against him. Lots of people in this world today, particularly in the United States of America, who go to a lot of churches where they, it's a, more of a social club than a place where the Word of God is taught, and they think that they're kind of in a neutral position. Well, you know, it's okay. Uh, this, this will be, turn out okay for us because, you know, God's a God of love and, and, and He won't be mean to us. <laughs> well, God is never mean, but God is righteous. And God is just. And I think people are simply not honest in their hearts about who God is and who they are before God. We are either in the camp following Jesus Christ because we have been saved by the blood of the Lamb and transformed, or we are not. Those are the only two positions. It's sort of like circumcision. You either are or you aren't. And so it was this day. Lost in thought, it was shocking, of course, as I said, for Joshua to see this, this person. But he came up to him, and the response that he got from this, this, this person was not was it what he was expecting. The response was no, no, <laughs> just no. Rather, I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. Captain of the host of Yahweh. Joshua soon understood what was happening to him, and he recognized that he was witnessing a theophany, the appearance of Yahweh in human form. This was God in human form. This probably was a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. How can we know this? We know this from Joshua's reaction. The scripture tells us in, in the passage there, Joshua, verse 14, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. He prostrated himself fully before this one there outside the walls of Jericho. And his response was, What has my Lord to say to his servant? What does the stranger do? The stranger accepts his prostration. No one in Scripture accepts prostration in worship except God. No one. Angels always defer and say, don't do that. Bow to God. This is not an angel because he accepts worship. And angels are not to be worshipped because one day we will be higher than angels. This had to be a theophany. God manifesting himself in human form. Just as the Lord had said to Moses at the burning bush encounter, where he had said, Moses, take your sandals off because this is holy ground you're standing upon, so does the captain of the host of the Lord say to Joshua. This is Joshua's burning bush encounter. 
As Moses had a face-to-face -face confrontation with God himself, so does Joshua. We have no record before this in Scripture of Joshua ever having this kind of an encounter with God. Oh, he'd heard the voice of the Lord, yes. But he had never seen anything within his eyes. He had never had a face-to-face -face confrontation with God in this manner before. And it comes at the perfect moment. Just as Joshua is about to lead this people into the greatest conquest of their history, and God meets him. It's a powerful witness, I think, to us. When we face issues and we face crises, God is there. We may not see him as, as a knight in shining armor with a drawn sword, but he is there for us. He will not let us to go into this crisis alone because he is our Lord. He is the captain of the hosts of the Lord, and we are part of the hosts of the Lord. The fact that he was told that this is holy ground is another statement that this is divine, a divine appearance. Because no ground is holy of itself. No ground is holy of itself. When we over traveled around through modern-day Israel, we didn't have a sense that we were walking on holy dirt. You know, somehow this dirt was better than dirt somewhere else. No, it's, very, it's a very rocky place, actually, today. And the, the ground is made holy by the presence of God. That's how it is made holy. 800 years from this time, the armies of Babylon would destroy the great temple of Solomon. In the destruction of the great temple of Solomon, they destroyed the entire temple, holy and holy of holies. The whole thing was destroyed by the Babylonians. How could they do that if it were holy ground? 600 years after that, the Romans would do exactly the same thing to Herod's temple. They would flatten it, destroy the whole thing, so that today when you stand on the Temple Mount, you see not a piece of either Herod's or Solomon's temple. In 63 BC, the commander of Roman legions by the name of Pompey the Great, in capturing Jerusalem, walked into the temple and into the Holy of Holies of the temple and lived to tell the story. Why? Because not even the Holy of Holies is holy without God. It's only holy if God is there. God was not there. Neither was the ark. And so Pompey lived to tell the story. And many Jews were shocked that he could walk in and walk out and live on for several years. If we have been born again in Jesus Christ, we have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell us at the moment of our conversion because it is by him that the new birth takes place. Since this is true, we are made holy by his presence. You as you sit here today are a holy person. Not because you may have all done perfect things this morning. You may have awakened this morning and a crossword might have passed out of your mouth. A bad thought might have crossed over your mind. Who knows what? But irrespective of that, you're a holy person because the Holy Spirit indwells all those who are born again in Jesus Christ. Let me read a, a passage from 1 Peter, first chapter, reading at verse 13. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior, because it is written, 
you shall be holy because I am holy, because the Lord is holy. Because he is holy and he indwells us, we are therefore holy. Oh, not with a halo concept, you know, but a true holiness as children of God, members of the kingdom of God, we are holy. The holiness of the ground can disappear, but the holiness of your life cannot. In its essence, we can act in a very unholy manner, yes, but the holiness is still there because in our hearts dwells the Spirit. And that's why the Scripture tells us to offend not the Spirit, grieve not the Spirit of God. And we do that. How can you grieve the Spirit unless He's nearby? Well, He's in our lives, and we grieve Him when we live or act in an unholy manner. We need to remember that holiness and live accordingly, as we're told in this passage. Be ye holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. The fact that the Lord appeared before Joshua with a drawn sword in his hand, I think, indicated two things. It indicated, first of all, that he was there to execute judgment upon the Canaanites. The sword of judgment had come. The, the, the period of, of patience with the Canaanites was over. But I think it also said, I am here to defend Israel. I am the mighty one, the defender of my people. And I stand here with a drawn sword to defend them. Who is the host of the Lord? You know, he says, I am the captain of the host of the Lord. Well, who in the world is the host of the Lord? Well, I've, I've put a few verses there for us to kind of get a general idea. If we turn to Psalm 103, at the end of the Psalm 103, Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I think that passage not only tells us that the angels are the hosts of the Lord, but everything he has made also is part of the host of the Lord. But thinking of angels again, if you know the passage in 2 Kings chapter 6, which I think you do, the life of Elisha. And Elisha was one day visiting the city of Dothan, which is up in the north part of Israel. And uh, there he was uh, surrounded by the armies of the enemy. 2 Kings 6.15, we read, Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, Behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? We're trapped here. The city is under siege. There's horses and chariots of the enemy all around us. We are in big trouble. So Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. These are the hosts of the Lord, the angelic hosts, which were surrounding the city of Dothan and surrounding the enemy army. Matthew chapter 26, reading at verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall sure, surely perish by the sword. 
Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That'd be 72,000 angels. All he needed was one. That's all he needed was one, yes. <laughs> and so I, it, was, it was a real statement of what's available. <laughs> but you know, there's another verse that throws a little light on this. Let me just read it quickly from Exodus chapter 7, verse 4. When Pharaoh would not, will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The phrase captain of the host of the Lord is a military statement. The hosts probably were the angels, but it could also be Israel. Throughout the prophetic books, and you probably have read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Malachi, and you read through those books, God is frequently referred to as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. This is a title of unparalleled grandeur, and it implies that the Lord is the, is, is, is the leader, the ruler over all creation, the angels above, man below, and the entire universe, planets, stars, the whole ball of wax. They are all his hosts. Captain of the Lord of hosts, the captain of the angelic armies, the captain of the true captain of the armies of Israel, and the captain of all God's creation. I think all of that is implied within that phrase. Was Joshua pleased? I think Joshua came away from this encounter with a sense of having met God, which is, of course, exactly what he had done. And Joshua, I think, the, the burden of the, of, the, of the whole thing rolled off his shoulders because it wasn't how he planned the battle and how he led the armies and, and how the victory would be won by Joshua. The battle was the Lord's. And, the, and Lord, the Lord was the captain of it all. Joshua was a sub-commander. He was simply to do what he was told. He didn't have to figure it all out and, army, and order the armies around. The Lord was in control. The Lord would give the orders. The Lord would bring about the victory. It would not be by his strength because he simply knew, we can't take this city because we don't know how. We don't have the equipment to do it but he could now go back with the confidence that he was in the hands of the captain of the hosts of the Lord. Let me just end today with uh, this passage from 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, reading at verse uh, 41. This, of course, is the story we've all... If, if, if you're a Sunday school person, if you grew up in a Sunday school, you've heard this story more times than you probably want to count. Verse 41, then the Philistine came out and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. Again, the youth simply means a young man. This doesn't mean he was a kid. David was probably right around 21 or so. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to, Phil to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the armies of the God, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down, remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the field of the earth. 
that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord, Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. The battle is the Lord's. Israel was prepared, but God delivered. The battle was his. And the battles that you and I face every day, whatever those battles may be, they are the Lord's battle. And he cares about every need and every anxiety and every fear that we have, and he will meet every one of them, and he will bring the victory. It's up to us to trust and obey. Well, we'll move into the sixth chapter of Joshua next Sunday.